make sure my mic is on, which it is now officially. All right, I got two thumbs up right there right away. Those ladies are on the ball. I want to uh, thank and uh, just express appreciation for those of you who are here. Um, as Brian was sharing, and I appreciate, Brian, what you had to um, to say, I, one of the things I realized is several years ago, I, I did with the congregation, went through a process of uh, a listening process and a lot of different things. And at one point, we got into groups and asked the question, amongst some other questions, but one of the questions was, what one thing, if it were taken away, would you say that one thing means that this is no longer the Billings Church of Christ that I know and love? And the number one answer from that that came back was the relationships that I've developed. And so recognizing, I think it's important as, as you read through the Psalms, one of the things I've learned through the Psalms is the psalmists are always honest about what they're upset about, what they're frustrated about, what they're disappointed about. There's never the sense we tend to do, well, you know, it's not really that bad. It's not really that bad. The, the psalmists are like, this is terrible and I hate it. And then there's this recognition that God is still faithful in the midst of that. And that's what I loved about that, that Lord's Supper reflection is that we can be very honest about the fact that we are a congregation that is represented by a huge diversity of opinions right now. Uh, some of us are over here and some of us are far over here. And yet what we do on a Sunday morning is we come and we gather around the word of God and we gather around the table as we say, this is the most central unifying glue in our lives. Um, I, I am aware of some churches this morning that are addressing this very thing because they're finding so many factions and divisions, people with so many different opinions that it's getting into the heart of who they are as the body of Christ. Um, and I just pray that as we go through this, we will keep the cross central in our relationships to one another. If any sort of a medical or political or ideological view gets in the middle and that becomes our center unifying thing, that is a reason for us to grieve. Um, because why we are here is not because we share certain political views or not because we share certain medical views. It's because we share a view of a God who brings us together for a common purpose. And so be comforted in the fact that God is about something. And for those of you who this is at the extent of your patience, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to go to the very boundary of what you think is logical or reasonable. Uh, I think our leaders are trying to find a very fine line right now between people with a lot of different opinions and a governor with an opinion who has more than just an opinion. He can offer these things called directives. Um, and so may God just bless us as we go through this process. I think about expectations and we realize that we all have expectations. Uh, sometimes we articulate the expectations and we don't. And one of the things that we're finding in this is that a part of our, our frustrations or disappointment is this feels very different than what we expect. See, we have these expectations. When you go to work for a week, you expect that at the end of it, your boss is going to pay you. When you uh, go to a restaurant and you order food, you expect that they're going to bring you the food that you order. When you tell your kids what to do, you expect that, at least some of the time, they're going to do what you tell them 
to do. We have expectations that we, we go through throughout life. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a parable coming out of Matthew 13. In fact, a series of parables about the kingdom. And what I want us to realize is that when Jesus mentions the word kingdom, there is already this full list of expectations that people have. That, that this is not a word that Jesus is just creating, but it's a word that comes with all this history that is jammed packed with all these meanings, expectations about a certain kind of representative of God who's going to come and do a very certain kind of thing. Now, in order for us to get a sense of what they were expecting, I'm going to ask you to imagine uh, being a college-age person around 15 AD in Palestine. And your parents are forcing you to go to school, and they're forcing you to at college to take a class called God's kingdom expectation. And you look over that syllabus and you realize immediately this is not a class you're really interested in taking. You have readings from a book called the Book of Enoch. You have readings from the Syllabine Oracle. You have readings from the War Scroll. And your eyes are already glazing over just reading the syllabus. And so you come up with an idea. You're going to hire the smartest kid in class. And he's going to read all of these books for you. And then he's going to come back and just summarize the main points for you. A couple weeks later, this student comes, his name's Cliff, and he gives you his notes. That's how Cliff's notes came about, in case you don't know. And so you now have these summarized versions of the expectations of the kingdom of God. And so of the book of Enoch, it says that the world's history is divided into ten periods. And only two periods remain in human history. The ninth period is when the just judgment of the whole world will be revealed, and all the works of the wicked will disappear from the earth. Then you read the section uh, about the sibling oracle, and it says, it speaks of a day when the great kingdom of the immortal king will appear unto men. Then will be the inexorable wrath. He will utterly destroy Rome with lamentable fate. All men will be destroyed in their own homes. Ah, me, when will that day come, the judgment of the divine king? And then of the war scroll, it says, This shall be a time of salvation for the people of God, an age of dominion from the members of his kingdom, of his company, an everlasting destruction for all the company of Satan, the dominion of the Ketim, that's the Romans, the dominion of the Romans shall come to an end, and iniquity shall be vanquished, leaving no remnant. For the sons of darkness, there shall be no escape. And with Cliff's notes in hands, you say, I have an idea about what the coming kingdom is going to be like. Very last day of class, your professor springs it on you that you're going to have a final exam. You're going to go listen to a teacher who is claiming to be the Messiah, who is claiming to usher in the kingdom, and your job is to say, is he bringing in the kingdom that we are expecting? And so on the field trip, you go to Nazareth, and you find yourself now sitting in a synagogue. And the teacher makes his way to the front, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, And when he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, you are not surprised at all because every day in class, you and your classmates have been betting how many times the professor is going to say, now turn to the scroll of Isaiah. Because people who talk about the coming kingdom love the book of Isaiah. And it's not surprising then when he opens to the 61st chapter of Isaiah and this teacher begins to read the words written there, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He continues reading till he gets to the line that says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at that point, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And there's an embarrassing silence in the synagogue. Your professor pulls you out, standing outside now, outside the synagogue, and he says, so what did you guys think? Is that the kind of thing you expect from the one to bring the kingdom? 
And one of the students immediately says, he didn't even, he didn't even mention the climax of Isaiah 61. Another one of the students recognizes that, and he says, yeah, why wouldn't he read the next line? And the day of vengeance of our God. Another kid asks, doesn't the coming kingdom require the eradication of every evil person? And as they're debating the appropriateness of this teacher's teaching, they come to find that they are, are, are thrown out of the way as a crowd who's escorting the teacher outside, driving him out of town. See, when Jesus begins to come and to speak about the kingdom, people have an expectation list of what must be fulfilled. And there's a concern that the kinds of things Jesus are talking about with the kingdom is not the kinds of things that he should be talking about. And so the question has been, as Jesus has began talking this way, is, Jesus, you've got some explaining to do. Because what you're describing is not lining up with what we've always been taught to expect. And so we find in Matthew chapter 13, as Jesus speaks about the kingdom, what he is doing is he's clarifying some of those expectations and is giving people a really clear understanding about what will be involved in the kingdom. So we're going to look at two of those expectations and the ways that these parables correct a couple of those expectations. The first expectation is that the arrival of the kingdom of heaven will be big and bold and impossible to miss. And to correct this notion, Jesus is going to tell two parables. The first is the parable of the mustard seed. I think you remember that parable, don't you? That the kingdom of God is, is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all of the seeds. But yet when it's planted and the appropriate time passes, it grows into a tree that's large enough for birds to come and to make their nests in. And Jesus is insinuating that the kingdom of heaven will begin in a small, almost impossible to notice, imperceptible way, but in its time it will grow to something of great significance. And then Jesus tells the parable of the leaven or the parable of the yeast. When, when the bread would be made, they would take a piece off of a previous loaf of bread. They would mix that into the new dough so that the leaven from the first bread would then spread to the rest of the loaf. And once again, it's this notion of something very small having an impact on something very large. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. July 4th, our family went to the metro to watch the fireworks. And as we were waiting and, and watching, one of the kids said, so has it started already? Because, you know, there's these occasional fireworks going off. And my answer was, I think when it starts, it's going to be impossible to miss. That was the expectation of the kingdom, that, that it's going to come in with such power and such force. It's going to be thunderous that nobody's going to miss. God's kingdom has come. And Jesus corrects that notion and saying, when the kingdom comes, it will come in a way that if you're not paying attention, you might even just miss it because it can be small and subtle and imperceptible. Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding about the kingdom. The second misunderstanding that Jesus corrects is the understanding that the righteous will eradicate evil by violent judgment. And to correct that notion, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds among the wheat. Now, Jesus is later going to give us an interpretive key. That's going to be in 13, 36 through 43, where Jesus is going to list seven items. He's going to say, here's what these seven items look for. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to retell the parable, and I'm going to incorporate that into our retelling of the parable. So we're going to kind of start at the, the kind of the climax of the plot here, which is that there are these servants who have been hired to go out and to take care of the field. They know that the master has already gone out and the master has, um, has sown good seed. And so they have an expectation. They have an expectation that as they're watering, as they're working with the ground, they're going to see wheat start to come out. 
And so, not surprisingly, they do start to see these shoots of plants coming up. But before long, they realize that there is an inordinate amount of weeds. It's not just that there's one weed or two weeds. That's something that they would expect. But we are starting to notice far too many weeds that something must have happened. And so they go to the one who planted it. And the first thing they want to know is, did you plant good seed? They want to be sure that he wasn't distracted and grabbed the wrong seed and he went out and he threw the wrong seed. Did you plant the good seed? To which the landowner says, yes, I did plant good seed. And so then there's a problem. If he planted good seed, why then are there so many weeds in the field? This is a problem. Something needs to be explained. And the way that the question asked is almost like a theological question. And it's the question about why, if the kingdom is here, is there still so much evil that's present? I mean, if you're saying that this big, powerful kingdom of God's rule has come, then why hasn't evil been eradicated? That was the expectation. If the kingdom has come, why haven't the wicked disappeared from the earth? If the kingdom has come, why hasn't Rome been utterly destroyed with lamentable fate? If the kingdom has come, why haven't we seen everlasting destruction for the company of Satan? And while we don't ask those questions about the kingdom, we do ask those questions about the world, right? I mean, if God created a good world, then what? Why is there evil in it? If God created the world good, where does bad come from? There are people who will say, I won't believe in a God who would allow suffering. There's people who will say that God is either all powerful but not good enough to do something about it, or he's all good but he's not powerful enough to do something about it. People are asking these very same theological questions today. And I'm going to tell you first of all what the answer is not. The answer is not it was God's will or God's plan. The answer is not, well, this is actually really how God wanted his field to be. This actually is the way that God desired it or that God intended it to be. Instead, he says that it was the work of an enemy. He explains that while they were asleep, an enemy came and sowed seeds amongst the wheat and went away. Jesus is telling us there's active opposition to the work of God. And that act of opposition is not credited to God. It's not seen as God's will or as God's work. And so when we see evil in the world, we have to recognize that this is not attributed to God. The weeds are not God's plan. They are not God's work. They are not God's design. They are not God's intention. An enemy is choosing to usurp God's plans. Evil exists not because God did anything there, that there is opposition to God's goodness. And after the theological concern becomes the ethical or the the moral response concern, which is, okay, so then if there are weeds in the field, what are we to do about it? And if, if you were to ask the question, what are we to do about the weeds, the evil and the wicked in the world, and you were to, to stop people on the streets of Palestine, I think you'd get the same answer nine out of ten times. You eradicate the evil. You, you, you're going to gra- grab some Roundup and you just spray and you just completely decimate all of the weeds in the world. There is this expectation that we take things into our own hands and deal with it. That's really, I think, what James and John are asking in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when Jesus entered a village of the Samaritans and they did not receive him. Remember what James and John asked? They said, um, should we, Lord, do you command us to bring fire down from heaven to consume them? What do you do 
with it, the, the question is either, hey, are, are you going to do it or should we do it? Because we know if people are rejecting the kingdom, then they need to be eradicated. And Jesus' answer to the disciples is we're not doing that. And his answer to these who say, should we gather up the weeds? He's saying, no, we're not doing that either. In fact, I think that this is where a little bit of my Canadian English comes into play here. Because when the disciples or when the servants ask, do you want us to gather them up? Really what the best way of reading this is, do you want us to gather them up, eh? So, so in Canada, we use this word A, and it's not a question, but it's not a statement. It's like a hybrid. It's like, I'm going to do this, but I'm, I have this little bit of question at the end of it. They're really asking for permission. Like, this makes the most sense for us to do, right? To go and gather up the weeds. And they're surprised when the owner of the field says what? No. No, it's not your job. In fact, the owner's response can be summarized as twofold. Number one, it's not you, and it's not yet. So who is going to gather up the weeds? That's going to be the reapers. The angels at the end of time, they are going to deal with eradicating the evil, but it is not your job to do. And Jesus ends his parable telling them that there's someone else who will come and do that. But what would Jesus, his audience, have understood to be involved in the process of gathering the weeds? What does it look like to gather the weeds. Now, I hope that you've gotten a picture from a few of those intertestamental writings, writings between when the Old Testament finished and the New Testament began. And there is a very strong sense that they are going to eradicate the weeds by the use of the sword. And that the righteous are going to be participants in bringing about God's kingdom by revolt and rebellion and war and battle. And so that's the expectation. And yet it come, we come to find that that's what they think needs to happen. The Romans need to be slaughtered. Everyone who is not a part of the kingdom needs to be wiped out. But to that agenda, Jesus says, not you and not yet. So we're going to answer the two questions. Number one, why would Jesus say not you? Why, why not have his followers, the children of the kingdom, go about the work of eradicating all of the evil through this violent means? And I think that, that, that this statement that resonates in my mind is be careful lest in slaying the dragon you become a dragon yourself. There is a concern here to Jesus that those who mess with this responsibility of gathering up the weeds that it may in fact be destructive to the children of the kingdom. See, because remember, by, by now what, what we expect to happen is there's so many weeds and so many weeds that their roots are intertangled that anything that you do to the weeds, it will not just damage the weeds, but it will damage the wheat also. And that anybody who tries to do something with the weeds right now are not just going to do damage to them, but they will then simultaneously do damage to themselves. See, the servants of Jesus are going to reach for the roundup to eradicate the weeds, and Jesus is trying to teach them that that would be detrimental to them all. To illustrate this, I, I think of the story of Dwayne Johnson, uh, kind of just average everyday guy, 43 years old, two kids, um, had a, had a blue-collar job. He worked as, a, as pest control for San Francisco schools. That meant he did everything from there's a skunk on campus, go track it down and get rid of it, to there's mice on campus to get rid of it, to also doing this, the insecticide and the spray all over campuses around San Francisco. So on average, 20 to 30 times a year, he would be on a campus spraying Roundup over everything that needed to be taken care of. In the time period that he worked there, he had two accidents where he was completely doused in the Roundup. After it happened the first time, two years later, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
A jury of his peers concluded that it was in fact his exposure roundup that led to the cancer, which is a realization that there are certain things that we can do to address the weeds that we are going to come to find out that it can impact us as well, that there is a cancer that can come upon us. And what Jesus is saying is he is saying to his children that this is not your job and not your work to do this violent opposition because somehow your soul may be poisoned in the process of eradicating the weeds. And though this doesn't answer all the questions, it certainly should inform some of the things that we think about in terms of Jesus' view of violence and nonviolence. I don't think this parable can answer every question there is about Christians and just war, but it is certainly something that needs to be considered. And one of the things that is very clear is if we have an agenda to bring in the kingdom of God and somebody suggests we should use violent force to do that, that this parable would say that is not an appropriate means of bringing in the kingdom of God. That is not our work. We've not been chosen to do that. In 2001, George Bush said, the mission of our nation is clear. We must rid the world of all evil. And whatever you think about that statement on a political or on a national level, the mission of the church is something very different than eradicating all evil. Because if that was the mission of the church, then this parable would say something completely different. Because Jesus' answer in this parable is, it's not your job to eradicate all evil. And so to the question of not of who, we come to find that it is not our work. This is a work that is reserved for angels. If you look at your job description as a Christian, your job description is not to grab the sword and get rid of anybody who's ever done anything immoral or wrong. But that will happen. But that will happen by the work of the reapers. The angels of God will do that work and that ministry. And why not yet? Hasn't evil been around long enough? Haven't the wicked prospered enough? Isn't it time yet for God to come and to eradicate all evil? I think dealing with this parable is going to require a lot of trust for us as we live in the not yet world. First, we have to trust that God is up to something, that God has a plan or a purpose. I mean, why not just go ahead and get rid of everybody who's doing wrong and evil right now, God? And I think a part of that answer comes from Peter in 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to come to repentance. See, a part of the not yet is saying that there is still something to be done between now and the harvest time. And if our job isn't to go around and to be killing all of the weeds, then what is our job? And that's where we're going to get this larger New Testament vision of the vision of the God's desire that all people come to repentance. Our job is to bring the message of Jesus Christ and his salvation to people who need to hear that message. Those who are currently weeds, who are facing judgment, need to be told about that coming future so that they can instead repent and turn to God. And the second thing we need to learn to trust is we trust in God's justice, that God will make right all the wrongs of this life. We have an idiom in English that says, talks about somebody getting away with murder. And that expresses, I think, a fundamental human concern that people might get away with all of their wickedness, with all of their wrongdoing. And if I don't trust that God's going to take care of justice, and if I don't trust that God's going to make things right, who do you think I'm going to think needs to make things right? 
Who do you think is going to say, well, it's my job to make sure that things are avenged that are wrong. I'm going to be the first one to put his hand up and say, I'm going to do it if I don't trust somebody else is going to do it. You ever remember working in small groups in school and some part of the assignment would be given to somebody who you know is not going to do it? I'd be one of those people who'd be like, I'm going to do it because I'd rather make sure it gets done than not show up tomorrow morning and find out that this guy didn't do his job. But how do we feel about with God? Are we willing to trust that God's going to make things right? And if we don't trust that God's going to make things right, we're going to say, I'm going to take care of it myself. Paul writes this in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For as written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is a, limited, a limit in our ability to address the evil in the world. And there is our limit in our ability to know when and what needs to happen in terms of of justice. But as we think of expectations, I think that one thing we realize that Jesus is giving us a very clear idea of something we can trust in. Here's how Jesus says what will happen at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. And once again, when Jesus gives us this warning of with anyone with ears listen, he is saying that there is an opportunity to respond if you understand what he's calling us to. And I think what Jesus is calling us to in this parable is to say there is a, a, a future that is determined. And the decision that we each make, are we going to go the way of the weeds and know that destruction will be our end? Are we going to go the way of the wheat and know that this eternal life is the end we have in store? There's a choice before us. And it's not just a choice we make once in our life. It's a choice that I think constantly and over and over again we're going to choose. Are we going to live in the way of the wheat, the children of the kingdom, or are we going to live in the way of the weeds, the children of Satan? And so as we live this week, I pray that we will live in a way that's honoring and a way that's faithful, knowing that God has the future in his hand and so we can trust him to do what he's promised to do. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we go into the world, we go realizing we don't go by ourselves, but we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God bless you all.